0: We welcome everyone uh, here this evening uh, and we trust that God will bless each of us as we worship together uh, in his presence and those who are visiting or listening online are are really welcome uh, to join us in our service uh, this evening. Uh, The midweek will be on Wednesday evening at 7.30 and we continue our studies in the book Uh, Love Your Church and we're looking at chapter 4 Uh, which is about caring uh, for one another. And we look forward to that discussion on Wednesday evening. And next Sabbath uh, morning is our communion service at 11 o'clock here in the congregation and the Thanksgiving service in the evening at 6.30 next week. There's other announcements uh, on the WhatsApp group, and I encourage you to to look at those uh, and consider the announcements uh, which are set out there. We begin our worship this evening uh, praising God from Psalm uh, 25, uh, singing verses 1 to 6 of this psalm, uh, Psalm 25, page number 44 and 45, uh, the tune is number 207. Uh, Psalm 25 uh, verses uh, 1 to 6, a psalm uh, well known by us and well loved by us as it looks to God for his grace and salvation, the one to whom we lift up our soul and have that assurance that God has tender mercies in verse 5 and loving kindnesses uh, for us. As we remember our sins and faults in verse 6 and acknowledge them before God, we come seeking His grace and salvation and forgiveness through Jesus Christ, His Son. Psalm 25, 1-6, to six, we remain seated and sing these verses of praise. Shall we stand as we come to God in prayer? Let us all pray. Lord God of heaven, we draw near before you this evening and we come with worship and praise unto you. And We thank you that this psalm guides us in our thoughts and adoration in these moments to bring our praise and honour before you this evening. Thank you, Lord, that this psalm reminds us of the God that you are the one in whom we are to delight and worship and honour and serve. Thank you that this psalm reminds us of your truth and that prayer that we come with this evening that you will lead us in your truth. Thank you that you are a God of truth, that you are a God who speaks and and keeps your word, that you are a God who in your thoughts and words and actions are characterised by what is upright and righteous and true. We praise you that while other religions and peoples look unto gods whom they have created and followed, yet we come this evening to you, the God who is true, the God who is living, the God who has revealed yourself and spoken to us. We thank you for your truth. Thank you that you have given that truth to us in your word. Thank you that you have shown us that truth in Jesus Christ, your son. He has said... I am the truth and we pray Lord that as we draw near this evening we will know your truth and hear your truth and believe your truth and delight in your truth. Thank you that this psalm reminds us of your tender mercies and we praise you for these this evening Lord God. We thank you for the variety, we thank you for the magnitude of them, we thank you that you show us mercy at all. Lord in heaven, we draw near with praise and wonder and adoration that you have not dealt with us as our sins they serve, but that you have shown us tender mercies. Lord in heaven, we praise you for this. We think of the state of the angels and how none of them were redeemed again after their fall. But we thank you that towards humanity you have shown tender mercies. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your long suffering. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the abundance of tender mercies towards us. We look around at our many blessings, at our temporal blessings and spiritual blessings and praise you that you are the source and author and creator of these tender mercies. We praise you that this psalm reminds us of your goodness, great Lord, we marvel at this and delight in this this evening. We thank you that you are good towards us, good in yourselves. There is none good but God. Jesus has taught us good supremely and wholly and completely, but also good towards us and good in a great manner. And we thank you and praise you for your goodness. We thank you for that supreme expression of your goodness in sending your Son Jesus Christ and him coming forth from the glories of heaven down into this world where he was despised and rejected by men, where he was crucified in our place and in our stead. We amazed at your great goodness towards us and come with praise and worship before you. O Lord, as we think of your attributes and yourself as revealed in this psalm, we bring our thanksgiving. But when we think of ourselves, and we are humbled before you. We speak here in this psalm of my sins and my faults. And Lord, as we draw near before you this evening, we are reminded of these. As we consider your truth and your goodness and your mercies, how far short we fall. O oh Lord, we acknowledge our sins before you. and We confess our transgressions. And we pray that in these moments of prayer and reflection and this pre-communion time, you will help us as we consider our lives, as we evaluate our priorities, as we think about the direction of our life. O Lord in heaven, we acknowledge our sins and our faults before you. We pray this evening, Lord, and throughout this week, we will have the assurance of your forgiveness that Jesus gives to us in the passage that we will think of this evening that all kinds of sins shall be forgiven to the children of men. O Lord, we pray that you will grant us faith to believe this and to feel the comfort and the joy and the acceptance of your forgiveness in Jesus Christ, your Son. Grant it, Lord, we pray as we draw near before you with our worship and thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Old Testament uh, reading this evening is in 2 Kings and chapter 1. 2 Kings and chapter 1. It's on page 307 in our church Bibles. Uh, This evening we'll be thinking of uh, the the second theme uh, in our uh, three themes uh, around this communion time uh, of the the scribes of Jerusalem uh, claiming that Jesus was filled with Beelzebul. And the connection to this chapter in the Old Testament is found in, in verse number 15, uh, 16, uh, where Beelzebub uh, is, is mentioned, the, the false god of Ekron. Of so we hear God's word in 2 Kings and the first chapter, and we read the whole chapter together. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah at the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us, and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And he said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist and he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of a hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God... Let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order, come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God... Let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours Be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehorah Jehorah became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Shall we remain seated as we come again to to God in prayer? Let, Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we come to you, the living and the true God, Thank you for this chapter that reminds us that you are the God to whom we should bring our prayers and our requests. However difficult our circumstances, however hard the the times are through which we are called to live, however big the problems are that we are facing, thank you that this chapter reminds us that you are the one to whom we should come with our intercession and our requests thank you that you're a great god a god who performs wonders a god who reaches down from the heights of heaven to intervene in the circumstances of earth and we bring again this evening before you the situation in ukraine and we commend that nation unto you and especially your people gathering there and we pray for them lord in the basements of buildings as they reach out to neighbors and friends with acts of love and with the christian message we pray for pastors and for elders caring and encouraging their congregation in these difficult times. We commend the church to you and that whole nation to you and their weakness in their need. Lord in heaven, we pray for your intervention and your mercy to come to that land. Thank you, Lord God, that you are the King of kings, that you are above all the nations of earth, that your purpose is being worked out And we come to you with our prayers and our requests. Father in heaven, we remember the work in Nantes and thank you for the progress of the planning permission and the beginning of the building to be erected there. And we pray for the needs for that project, that they will be met and that the required personnel will be found. Father, we pray that the building uh, will progress and be completed and that it will be a tremendous place of welcome and witness and help uh, for for the needy of that city. Lord in heaven, we pray that you'll be with the decision-making processes through this time and grant insight and direction at every stage we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the new ministers going to Airdrie and to Loch Brickland, and we pray for them as they prepare for for this new chapter in their lives. Lord, we ask for help for them in the practical arrangements of of moving, and we pray that as they commence their ministries in, in those different but needy places, that you will bless your servants. that you will guide them in all their ways, that you will help them in their pulpit ministries and in their pastoral work, that you'll be with them in their families and in their personal lives. Lord, may your grace and spirit fill them, we pray, and may their ministries be fruitful and useful and honoring unto you, we ask, in the coming time that you give to them in those locations. Father, we thank you for the work in Woodstock and for the encouragements that your people have seen there. And we pray for them as they engage in street witness at this time. We pray for the contacts to be made there which will be able to be pursued and and followed up. And we pray uh, that in your providence you will uh, direct uh, to, to them. Uh, people seeking you, and people ready to hear your word and and eager uh, to know the living God. Father, we pray for direction and blessing and help in that ministry. Father in heaven, we thank you that as we sit here in church this evening that we can look unto you as we begin this new week. Thank you, Father, as we think of the responsibilities and duties perhaps of the challenging experiences which some of us have throughout this week and towards the end of the week. We pray to you and seek your presence and your grace and your strength. Thank you that you have promised that as our days are, so our strength will be. Thank you that you have said that your grace is enough for us. And we pray not only for ourselves gathered here, but for members of the fellowship not able to be here because of illness and weakness and and other familial concerns. And we pray for them too, that they also will find in you the God of grace, the God of love, the God of all sufficiency for your people. Father, we come this evening with thanksgiving for your mercies, for your goodness, for your love your faithfulness to your word and to your promises and to your people and we bring these our prayers unto you in Jesus name amen our new testament reading this evening is from the gospel of mark mark's gospel and reading in chapter 3 Mark chapter 3 and reading from verse 22 to verse 30 of this chapter. It's found on page 838 of the Pew Bibles. Mark 3 verses 22 to 30. Let us hear God's word. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. But is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. I'm sure uh, you're finding and discovering that everyone has an opinion about the character and actions. Of President Putin. You can't uh, open a quality newspaper but find articles uh, on this uh, very issue. The Times uh, last week was divided in its opinion about the, the character of President Putin. Uh, the division uh, was regarding his lunacy or his lying. Uh, some contributors maintained that he was suffering from a degree of lunacy. They, they believe that there has been this shift within his mental processes which has caused him to become bizarre and unpredictable in his actions. Others claim that he has been lying in his claims of genocide in the eastern areas of Ukraine and using them as the the justification for the attack which he is pursuing even at this very time. And we come to this section of of Mark's gospel, a a logical progression of the unpacking of this incredibly structured gospel. We began with looking at the beginning of the gospel in chapter 1 with the herald and baptism and temptation of Jesus Christ. And we jumped on then into the second year of Jesus' ministry, not in Judea, which comprised the first year, but the second year, 116, into Galilee. And in chapter 1, Mark focuses on the preaching and miracles of Jesus in Galilee. Many were healed. Many towns were preached in. Many people were following him. But then Mark moves on into his third section of the conflict stories. And Mark shows us that while there was this tremendous following of Jesus in Galilee, yet there was also this undercurrent of opposition. And through the five conflict stories, he has shown us this rising sense of antagonism to Jesus of Nazareth and his ministry climaxing in 3 verse 6 where the Pharisees plot To destroy him. And now Mark moves on to this this next section. Of addressing the question of who Jesus is. And he pulls together in this third chapter. Three chief opinions about Jesus of Nazareth. And this morning we were thinking of the opinion of his family. That Jesus Was out of his mind in in verse 21. That Jesus because of his actions. And because of the pressure on him. And because of his behavior and claims. They concluded that he was out of his mind. Next Sabbath day we'll think of the claim in verse 11. You are the son of God. But this evening we think of the the third claim. in, In this Three-pronged summary of the popular opinions about Jesus Christ which Mark gives us here. And it's the claim of the elite, the refined, the sophisticated, the well-educated, the graduated from the high-class Jewish universities and schools of Palestine. What do they think? What's their opinion? We have it in verse number 30. They were saying, the present continuous tense, they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. My structure this evening is following the text and so we think first of all in verse 22 of the accusation of the scribes the accusation of the scribes it's a double accusation in verse 22 isn't it firstly they say he is possessed by Beelzebul and second they say by his power he casts out demons this double accusation. Firstly he's possessed by Beelzebul. It's a strange phrase for us isn't it Beelzebul and some translations have Beelzebub and that brings us to 1 Kings and chapter 1 and it's, a, it's an interesting word it means the Lord of the Dwelling. And it has a, an interesting history and transition into the New Testament through the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, as you know. Because they changed the, the meaning slightly from the Lord of the dwelling to the Lord of the flies or, or the Lord of the, the dunghill to, to have this negative and derogatory sense uh, within the title, belzebub Bob. But, but other translations have Belzee Baal, and this links to an Old Testament word zebel, found in five places in the Old Testament, meaning prince and it helps us here in the explanation given in this verse twenty two zebel means prince Baal or, or Baal what was the dominant false god in, in the Old Testament and in many parts of the Old Testament. False gods are, are connected to, to the work of demons and the devil in Psalm 16, for example. And so we, we understand that the interpretation here that Beelzebul means the prince of the demons. And so this is the, the assertion, the claim of the, the scribes of Jerusalem that, that Jesus is full of the Prince of the demons. this is where his power is coming from. And by this power, he is casting out demons. The scribes and the, of the, the scribes or the Pharisees, they could not deny that, that Jesus was casting out demons. The evidence was before them. The people have witnessed this. They could see the change in individuals before their very eyes. Chapter 1 is full of that assertion and that section in Mark where he collates the, 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 the miracles of Jesus. Again and again he says in that chapter, And Jesus cast out demons. This was a, a distinct brand of Jesus' miracles. One brand was he healed diseases. But there was another element to Jesus' miracles. He cast out demons. And so the, the, the Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem, that they, they couldn't deny that he was doing this. What they wanted to explain was how he was doing it. And their conclusion was, that he was casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons, Beelzebul. You can imagine the scene of these elite teachers arriving in Galilee. And, and the locals who, who had come to, to, to recognize that among them was a local hero, Jesus Of Nazareth, rushing up to these elite teachers with great enthusiasm. Well, have you heard of Jesus then? What do you think of our Jesus from Nazareth? The miracles that he's doing, the exorcisms that he's performing. What do you think of Jesus? And their reply always and ever was. They kept on saying, Is the tense here? He's casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. And this accusation stuck. In the early church, numerous of the church fathers were counteracting this. Claim against Jesus in the second and in the third century. And in the writings of Oregon and of Tertullian, you find them arguing against this assertion of various religious writers that Jesus sourced his power from the Prince of Demons. In AD 32. And some of you will be interested in in this uh, detail in the Sanhedrin writings. There is this line recorded. Jesus of Nazareth was charged on the day of preparation for the Passover. Because he practiced sorcery and led the people astray. Here's the assessment, the claim of the scribes, the elite, the aristocratic scholars of the day about the identity of Jesus. And this assessment of theirs has powerful. Application for us, doesn't it? As we witness, as we pray for our children, as we care for our neighbors, that salvation is of the Lord. These men knew the scriptures better than any Reformed Presbyterian minister they counted the words on every page. They knew the central word in every book of the Bible. Such was their detailed knowledge and memory and understanding to a degree of the Old Testament. And when they used the word Beelzebul, they had no question about how they were using it and the connections that they were making. But despite all that light, this was their assessment of Jesus, the Son of God. He performs his miracles by beelzebub And so, we sometimes reflect that, how great it would be for our unconverted friends and family to have been in the time of Jesus, to have heard him preach, to have witnessed firsthand his miracles. We we wonder, we hope, we imagine that that surely would have been enough for them to believe. But here are these men speaking with Christ, interacting with Christ, witnessing his miracles and yet loving darkness rather than light and they and our family members and neighbours and friends need the working of the spirit of God to come down upon them to grant them faith understanding repentance and union with Jesus Christ James Edwards in his commentary says faith is not an automatic, inevitable, or necessary consequence of witnessing the acts of God. The accusation of the scribes. But secondly, and we're moving into verses 23 to 27, the answer of the Savior. Now Jesus, as we've seen in Mark's gospel, does not back down. And here is another instance of Christ. And and, and you see the language here in in verse number 23. He called them to him. Here is the one that they're bad-mouthing, that they're slandering, that they're putting out this line about. And he doesn't hide in the corner or send them a reply. He calls them to him. Face to face. Toe to toe. He's going to take them on. These scribes from Jerusalem. These respected, these elite, these distinguished scholars. He summons them into his presence. But when they come there, he uses incredible tact and wisdom. Rather than direct confrontation, he uses questions. And rather than direct statement, he uses parable. Jesus will get his point over. It will be crystal clear. But in that charged atmosphere, he doesn't accentuate the tension. He uses question and parable to get his message over. And he makes two points here. Firstly, he addresses their defective logic. He's saying, you're claiming that I am casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. Isn't this counterproductive? If a king attacked his kingdom, if a chief in a clan attacked his clan, that would lead to the, the destruction of the kingdom and the decimation of the clan. We've read of the murder of the Campbells and McDonalds in and, and Glen Cole. We've seen the decimation in Northern Ireland throughout the Troubles. We're witnessing brother Russia attacking brother Ukraine at this time. And the madness of the whole situation. And this is Jesus' metaphor here. If the king attacks the kingdom, if the chief attacks the clan, it's illogical and will bring around the destruction of the kingdom and the clan. But then he moves on to the second metaphor. He says the real situation here is not civil war, but war. It's not the king and the kingdom attacking each other. It's not the chieftain and the clan at war. But this is the son of God and Satan at battle. And these are not equal parties. There's a strong one and Satan is a strong one and he has wiles and he has guile and he has strength and he has influence. He is a strong one. The the demons possessing humans has evidenced that the strength of Satan, but there's a stronger than the strong one. And what is happening is That the stronger one has come. And he is binding the strong one. And he is bringing back from the clutches of the strong one's kingdom. And rescuing humanity. He has come to save and to destroy the works of the devil. What was promised in Genesis 3 verse 15 has been worked out before their very eyes. Yes, Satan is bruising his heel, but he is bruising Satan's head. It is Satan's way to destroy humanity, isn't it? The demon possessions here so rife in the early part of Jesus' ministry. Mark records none after chapter 8. There is this concentrated attack against Jesus. Professor Leahy in his book draws attention to this, this mimicking of Satan, of the Son of God. He becomes incarnate and Satan and the demons tries this incarnation in them as well. He seeks from the very beginning of time to disfigure and destroy the image of God in man. Coming to Eve in the garden and tempting her with the forbidden fruit. Coming to King David at the height of his power and prompting him to number the people. Coming to the apostle Judas and persuading him to sell his master for 30 pieces of silver. This is Satan's way. To destroy humanity and to disfigure the followers of Christ. And some of us speak too much about Satan. But most of us speak too little about Satan. It's a great thing that Regent House's scripture union in years 1 to 3 has been teaching the young people about the armor of God to remind them and enforce to them that they are in this spiritual battle and that there is an unseen enemy who is wily and powerful and they need the strength of God to stand firm. But while Satan's way is to destroy, Jesus' way is to heal. He has come to rescue He has come to deliver. He has come to transform. He has come to save. And a general application of Jesus' ministry is not that we go out casting out demons, but a general application of Jesus' ministry here is that we go out to heal people. That we look around the church this evening and this morning and the membership list and we think of the brokenness in people's lives. And we ask ourselves, how could I heal that broken person? What could I do to that person who has known loss, who has known unemployment, who has known financial challenge, who has known unjust treatment? How can I get alongside of them and heal their brokenness? An old lady in the congregation in which i was brought up used to pray every morning lord make me a blessing to someone today the accusation of the scribes the answer of the savior and thirdly the application of the situation. And this brings us to verses 28 to 30. What a scene this is. Face to face. Toe to toe. Eyeball to eyeball. The elite. The scribes of Jerusalem. The highest level of the Sanhedrin. Standing in Galilee in the presence of Jesus. Him defending his position. Him rebuking their accusation. The tension is high. But in that moment of high tension, Jesus grasps it for the grace of God. In verse 28, all sins will be forgiven children of man. What a woman. He's the friend of sinners. He encourages repentance at every corner. All sins will be forgiven to the children of man. In the Bible there In the Old and New Testament there are these occasions where long lists of sins occur. And you come across them in the prophets and you come across them in the gospels and you come across them in the epistles and and the writer takes time to detail them. And one of them in 1 Corinthians 6 and here's the nine sins that are stated sexual immorality idolatry adultery homosexuality thieving greed drunkenness swindling revelry Nonsense. The writer goes on to say the very same thing as Jesus says here. And such were some of you, but you were washed. As we come to communion next week and think about communion in this week. We we need to come to this incredible statement of Christ. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man. What is the sin that troubles you? What is the sin that haunts you? What is the sin from your youth or your recent past that looms so great in your mind? We need to come to this verse again. All sins be forgiven the children of man in this moment of tension he's about to talk about the eternal sin but in this moment of high tension and and the greatest soberness Jesus speaks of grace and he speaks to us of grace but then he comes to, to address the seriousness of of what these elite scholars have said. But he says there's one sin that won't be forgiven. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, verse 29, has never forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And that means that there is no forgiveness for it and that guilt will go on upon the shoulders of the person forever and they will suffer the judgment of God eternally. But what is it? And this passage has haunted many Christians over many years and theologians write extensively on this very passage. What is this eternal sin for which there is no forgiveness? William Bridge, eh, the Puritan, he writes, issues a a great sermon on this very passage. He's tremendously pastoral. He enters into the the wrestlings of the souls of Christians and from his extensive pastoral experience, he he pulls out eh, five reasons people have given to him why they believe they have committed this eternal sin and, and he He examines those reasons and answers those reasons. And I I just briefly mentioned some of them to you. The first one he says is, someone says, I've committed a great sin that cannot be forgiven. And this is how he goes. He says, great, you say? Well, how great, man. And the reply is, I have sinned against my light. And Bridge goes on to say, well, come on now. Adam did that. But God promised him the Savior. Foul sins was another reason given to him. And he says, well, come on now. David did that. And God forgave him. Declined in my religion is another reason given. But he says the church at Ephesus did that. And Christ tells them to repent And receive his forgiveness. Sin directly against the spirit. Well he says. Those in Acts 7 did that with Stephen. And he prayed for their forgiveness. Denied the truth. Oh come on now he says. Peter did that. And Jesus. Restored him. So what is. This eternal. Eternal sin. If you've got time uh, later, I encourage you to look at the monergism uh, website, and Ichabod Spencer has this great story of of him uh, meeting a a congregant who claimed that she'd committed this sin, and and he takes her through it over some pastoral sessions and shows her that she she hasn't uh, committed this sin. In my own experience, I've only encountered this On one occasion, and it was when a friend of mine committed suicide. And people spoke to me after that and said, isn't that the unpardonable sin? Because he had no chance to repent after he committed that sin. And that logic breaks down, of course, because there's many sins that we do not specifically repent of in our lives. So what is that? this eternal sin. I lean on Burkhoff for the explanation. He says, this sin consists in the conscious, malicious, and willful rejection and slandering against evidence and conviction of the testimony of the Holy Spirit respecting the grace of God in Christ, attributing it's out of hatred and enmity to the prince of darkness. It's doing what the scribes did here, seeing the evidence, realizing the truth, but being unwilling to accept that truth and attributing the grace of God and Jesus Christ to the working of the prince of darkness. So who are we going to believe then about the identity of Christ, the scribes from Jerusalem, these elite, these gifted, these able scholars, many in our world do? They look at the degrees which someone has after their name and where they have studied and the college from which they have graduated and if they are learned and capable, they must know they have spent years in studying this. Surely they can tell us how to get to God and who Jesus Christ is. Or do we believe the claims of Jesus of Nazareth? That he is The very Son of God, evidencing His Godhood and the miracles that He's performing. And it's a crucial determination that we face. Because this promise of forgiveness for all sins is connected to the identity of his person. Only someone who is fully God and fully man can underpin and secure such a statement. All manner of sins can be forgiven to the children of men because he who is God and man has taken on himself Sins of the world. So he is Lord. Not lunatic as his family asserted, not liar as the scribes from Jerusalem claimed. But he is Lord. And he's our Lord. Let us in this week work this out in our homes. Lord of my family. Lord in my workplace. Lord of my hobbies. Lord of my thoughts. Lord of my words. Lord of my deeds. Let us pray again the prayer of Saul of Tarsus. Lord, my Lord. What will you have me to do? We sing in closing uh, this evening from Psalm 26. Uh, the whole of this psalm is Psalm number uh, 26. Uh, the tune is number 152. Psalm 26. Asserts for us the delight we have in gathering with God's people and the grace that we require from the Lord supremely and ultimately Christ is the only one who can sing these words in their depth and ultimate meaning. In verse number four, I wash my hands in, in innocence. Go round your altar, Lord. Psalm 26, we remain seated as we sing the whole of this psalm. Let us praise God. (laughs)
1: Oh, <laughs> are
0: we stand as we come to God in prayer. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for this passage which gives us insight into the ministry of Christ. And we thank you for his wisdom. We thank you for his power. We thank you for his uprightness. And we thank you, Lord, that he again and again brings us to your grace And we thank you for this tremendous assertion in the presence of such argument and debate and darkness and unbelief that all kinds of sin will be forgiven to the children of man. We pray that in this pre-communion time, Lord, that we will be able to visit this promise of grace and appropriate it into the very dungeons of our heart and corners of our being, and that we will come to communion, assured of your love and rejoicing in your full and complete forgiveness. Strengthen us in this week, Lord. Lead and guide us in your ways, we pray. Show us your paths. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit rest on and abide with you all. Amen.